This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I'm Jethro Jones coming to you from Washington, founder of the B Podcast Network and author of the book School X and How to Be a Transformative Principal. I'm a former school leader at all levels of K-12 education. Greetings, everyone. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in Brooklyn, New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently Cyber Traps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cyber Traps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the world's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, and cyber safety. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. For more information or to donate to our work, please visit centerforcyberethics.org. The Cybertraps podcast is a production of the Center for Cyberethics, a 501c3 independent nonpartisan educational institute dedicated to the study and promotion of cyber ethics as a positive social force through research, curricular development, publishing and media, professional training, and advocacy. Want to know one of my biggest frustrations with EdTech? Having too many tools and not enough time to use them right. They require too much training and it takes too much effort to implement it effectively. That's why it makes such a difference that IXL can do the job of dozens of individual tools. So I have everything I need for instruction and assessment in one place. IXL is research proven to accelerate achievement. Studies across 45 states show that IXL schools outperform non-IXL schools on state assessments and independent research from Johns Hopkins University verifies that IXL meets ESSA Tier 1 standards. With those results combined with IXL's teacher-friendly reputation, what more could you ask for? I'm sure you want to increase achievement for all students. Find out how IXL can help. Visit IXL.com slash BE for a demo. That's IXL.com slash BE.
Hey there, Jethro. Well, happy Monday, Fred. How are you? <laughs> I am fine. Thank you very much. Any uh, professional updates to share before we dive in? Uh, well, by the time this comes out, I will uh, I will either be doing or have done uh, two webinars, one for the state of Arizona, one for the state of North Dakota, uh, both of them on artificial intelligence and how that's impacting our schools, and just really a lot of fascinating stuff going on around that idea, which we're going to talk to, uh, I'm sure, a little bit today with our with our guest that we'll get into in just a moment. Any professional updates from you? Well, just one. I know we covered a lot last week, but the inbox uh, pinged this morning with an invitation from the Georgia School Boards Association uh, to go okay. down and talk about, coincidentally, AI and its impact on the schools. Uh, so that's clearly the hot, hot topic of the day. So I'm excited yeah. about that. Um, definitely want to give a shout out to the folks that I know in Georgia, and I'm looking forward to coming down. Yeah, that's awesome. It's it's so fun to talk to people all over the country about these different things that are happening and what's going on and how they're impacting or not. And just uh, putting a plug for anybody who's listening, the AILeader.info service that I run, which uh, is um, helps people learn about AI from a hopefully trusted source <laughs> myself. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, that that is good. Go to AIleader.info and check that out. And I think there's uh, there's a lot of good stuff in there. Lots of videos, three-minute masterclasses that you can learn about AI and tools that are available and how to use them for what you're doing in schools. Uh, go check that out, AIleader.info. Well, let's get to our guest, which is Todd Johnston. He's a senior education content manager at Sphero, uh, which if you don't know what Sphero is, you should definitely check it out. Uh, they at least started out making these little spheres that you could control using apps and coding and uh, are, are quite cool. Uh, Todd is leveraging over 10 years of experience in the classroom settings with a focus on classroom technology, math education, STEM, and the environment. Todd applies practical teaching expertise to positively impact technology integration in schools. He also has experience as a learning experience designer, designing curriculum, presenting at conferences, and researching educational technology and math education trends. He is dedicated to transforming education through innovative approaches. Todd, welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Well, it's a well, pleasure to have you on. Should be an interesting conversation. Yeah, for sure. Why don't you tell us what Sphero is doing right now that is exciting and uh, and new for people who who may have heard of you before or don't know that much about Sphero? What is it and what do you do? Yeah, so Sphero, one of the greatest things I really appreciate about working at Sphero is that um, it's constantly evolving and we are uh, trying new things and releasing new products all the time. Uh, as you mentioned, Jethro, we are probably best known for ro programmable robots, uh, spheres that uh, students can um, get into the basics of, of computer science and computer programming by, by programming these robots to roll around. But actually just this spring, or actually at ISTE this past year, we released a new product uh, called Blueprint that is um, uh, gets into the basics of engineering. Um, and it's a build kit where, where kids can uh, build their own little inventions and get into the mechanics behind simple machines and that type of stuff. 
<laughs> what uh, what kinds of machines actually are they building? The, the thing that makes me curious is that my kids did the Lego robotics challenge uh, way back when, and that's a whole story of its own. But is it similar to that? Or are they they putting like are they building the components themselves into devices? Yeah. So they uh, well, I can hold up. So it's all based on these on these trusses that you can huh? uh, snap together and build big structures. Um, and unlike with Lego robotics, um, at least at this point, there's no programmable brain. Um, so it's more focused on on building and then powering these these systems. But there definitely is some some overlap it, between the two. See, what you need to do then is get to the point where you've got international competitions going. Right, it's right, a, right, boy, right. is that an ecosystem, the whole Lego <laughs> thing, I will tell you. It's a no whole world kidding. for sure. Yeah. So one of the things that we'd like to talk about with you, Fred and I talk a lot about cybersecurity and why it's so important, especially as we use technology in schools. And this is an area where we just think there's there's so much that is unknown and so much that is possible and uh, such an area where it's difficult because nobody, nobody who is an educator is an expert in this arena. And so what are the things that we should be paying attention to as it relates specifically to cybersecurity? Yeah, well, and that's it's such an interesting uh, question because, you know, you hear the word cybersecurity, it immediately sounds pretty abstract, very yeah. complicated. The industry comes in and defines it, you know, as something like, here, how do we how do we keep our computing systems, our electronic devices, um, our data safe from, from threats, safe and protected from threats and misuse? But what I appreciate about your the, your two, the podcast um, that you're putting together is you really come at things from an educator perspective. And I think that mm -hmm. educators need to flip that entirely around and think, at, think about cybersecurity as like, from a student's perspective, is like, what, is, what do students need to do to keep themselves and the people around them safe in an, in an increasingly digital world. Yeah, I'm sorry, John. One of the things I was going to say is um, you know, we talk actually, I think, very much about a culture of cyber safety, this idea that in the school community, the only way to effectively do cybersecurity is for everyone to feel investment in the process and the outcome. Yes, it makes a ton of sense to me, right? And it's like it takes it takes all of us to to have a to have a safe community. I'm and not really quite old enough, but I'm almost old enough to remember the loose lips sink ships posters from World War II. Uh -huh. Yeah. <laughs> so there, well, there just, is that sense we're all in this together. Right, right. And it's it's impossible to do on your own, right? Like these these topics and these practices are so complicated that it's, it's impossible to manage on your own, like for mm -hmm. example. Um, I read an article the other day about uh, like a a digital payment app um, that I've used for a long time, right? And all my all my transactions have always been private. But this article told me that, hey, my contact list in that digital payment app is probably not private. And I went into uh -huh. my settings and that my, that contact list was was public. So I changed it to private. But like you, you it it takes a culture of of learning and from each other and from from resources to to navigate it effectively. Yeah. 
Well, you know, it's funny you mentioned that, Todd, and, and we're not particularly bashful about calling out companies. So let's be clear that this is Venmo. And if you use Venmo, you really yes. want to check out the recent coverage. Yeah. And it does absolutely amaze. I mean, incidentally, I didn't know that myself about the contact list. So I'll go back and take a look at that. But I've got family members who use that. And it is remarkable how much information they mm -hmm. share just by making public payments. Mm -hmm. You know, and a couple of the kids are in college, and I'm not sure they really want <laughs> their parents necessarily knowing what they're Venmoing their buddies for. So right. um, definitely something for people to think about. Right. Yeah, I did just pull mine up because, uh, you know, I think about those kinds of things also and made sure that it is set to private as my default. Uh, but that is something that is totally crazy because that seems like that should be the default and yet it's not. And so when we, I, I like how you're talking about taking it from the student perspective, because we need to be thinking about what these kids are experiencing and what they are coming into as they start using these tools, especially as they start using tools that schools provide to them. And they need to, one, be thinking about it. But at the same time, I think we should be teaching them specifically to be looking <laughs> for these things in the tools that they're adopting and that they're that we're asking them to use. What are your thoughts on that, Todd? Yeah, I, um, I agree 100%. The challenge is that these, the landscape seems to be constantly shifting, right? Changing privacy policies, changing regulations, and it's um, impossible to stay, uh, stay on top of the first privacy policy and then updates privacy policies is so difficult. Um, I, I also am a, a parent of an incoming high school freshman and another child in, in middle school. And it's, it's, um, they are compared to me, I think in many cases to their benefit, they, they have they kind of click first they will in a digital world they try things and they are not intimidated by the digital world but at the same time i think a danger of that is they don't they don't know sometimes what they're clicking and what they're what they're authorizing that is very true that's something that uh one of the things you know we talk about a lot is that kids aren't afraid to break stuff they aren't yeah. afraid to to do something and see what happens Whereas we as adults are like, oh, we've grown up with computers that we could break. And so, you know, we could we could erase a whole entire file system. I think uh, the phrase you're looking for is have broken. <laughs> yes, that is correct. That is correct. That is correct. Uh, yeah, that was I, I got some firsthand exposure to computer forensics way back when, when I, in fact, did trash a hard drive. And uh, yeah, it's a thing. <laughs> Yes. So uh, one of the things that Sphero does is they, they have curriculum around cybersecurity. And this is something that is, uh, it's kind of difficult to teach this. How do you guys approach it? And what's your, what's your thought process behind that? Yeah. So um, these robotic balls that we have called Bolt, they are very good about teaching like algorithms and, and programming and though that subconcept <laughs> within the CSTA standards, but we've always had a hard time teaching other concepts in computer science outside of that algorithms and programming concept area. One thing that I think makes it really good for cybersecurity, um, where you have these concepts that are complicated, right? They're beyond the knowledge and skills of most middle school students as well as extremely abstract, right? They're hidden beneath layers and layers of computing systems, right? 
But what you can do with um, these robots is you can kind of surface some of those topics and you can make them visual um, so that you can have discussions about it. And that's uh, kids have some kind of baseline about what what a person in the middle attack is or what a DDoS attack is um, or how passwords are secure or insecure. Um, and then I think particularly this is important at that younger age, right? You're engaging kids in those topics. You're giving them a little bit of information about it that will help them keep them safe, regardless if they ever go into a career in cybersecurity or not. But then also hopefully showing kids that, hey, this is something that's interesting that I understand and maybe I can in go further into. Um, so for like, I think it might be helpful to go into like one of those lessons in particular. So like take this person in the middle attack, right? You have two bolts next to each other and you can send IR messages between robots. Um, and so you have two bolts, maybe this is a person in the coffee shop and maybe this is the server in the coffee shop and they're sending messages happy, happily back and forth. And then you come in and you put a book between the, the, the two bolts. So there's no line of sight. Um, and all of a sudden those bolts can't communicate, but you put a third bolt here, the person in the middle, and it just starts taking those messages and passing them back and forth. It's just, it's not doing anything bad, but it is in between. And then you get to like the malicious point of that attack. And like, you have that, that robot in the middle that is not just listening, but is actively changing that message. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's a very shallow uh, example of what a personal middle attack is, but for initial understanding, I think it's really empowering to give kids that that basic understanding, individual way that's not reading an article or watch, watching a, a, a video about it. Hmm, that's very cool. Uh, and I like how you can actually use the devices that you that you have the kids using for other things to demonstrate that, which I think is is powerful. You know, a lot of the the concepts here are abstract and difficult because it's all ones and zeros and almost all of it is happening in, in a way that you can't really see. And mm -hmm. and so I think that's really valuable to have that that type of uh of opportunity there. Um, well, I think just following up on that, yeah. Jethro, and one of the things that and Todd, I'm sure you'd agree with all of this is that we as technology geeks or technologists are very good at creating terminology that makes perfect sense to us, but can be opaque to people who are trying to understand. Like man in the middle is a great description, but what's it really mean? And I think you, by giving a visual representation to kids, you're really overcoming that particular hurdle. Um, I, I think that's really smart. Right. Yeah, it was a, it was, so all in all, I think we have 20 specific lessons. I mean, each lesson can really expand into uh, hopefully the discussions <laughs> and the continued learning goes further than each of those. But as we also, for this set of, for this curriculum, we've collaborated with um, Dr. Pauline Mosley, who's a, who's a professor at Pace University in New York. Um, mm -hmm. She was a tremendous resource for us to kind of Get a little bit out of our comfort zone and what we do with these robots and and, tr and try to get into wow. some other really relevant and important topics and for middle school students. That's actually very cool. Obviously, I'm I'm based in the New York area. Maybe you can put us in uh, contact with her and we'll see if she can come in and chat as well. Yeah, she uh, is, that, she's fantastic. She runs a, really cool. 
she runs a, a camp every summer called Camp Cryptobot um, with past there has past couple of years might have been virtual, but she's also done it in person um, mm. uh, with with high school students and kind of same same goal as these labs that we put together, just giving kids an initial understanding, helping them understand how to mm-hmm. be, how to how to uh, act appropriately in a digital world, and then also engaging them and in, in continuing in. A, and exploring those career paths. Let's talk about flex time in schools. If you've been listening for a long time, you know how important I think this is. It gives us more time for personalized learning, increasing choice and agency for students, and the increased enrollment that comes with it, dedicated time for intervention and enrichment. And overall, as school leaders, it gives us and our faculty more tools to increase academic achievement. But the implementation and management of flex time can be so tough. Tricky logistics and a lack of clear accountability systems can prevent teachers from buying in and can hold us back from ensuring students make good use of their time. I'm pleased to share that MyFlex Learning provides a solution to these challenges and more. MyFlex Learning helps you create and manage flexible time for any purpose. And with seamless SIS integration, a student locator, flexible daily rostering, and an intuitive mobile app, it eliminates the common challenges of implementation and management. Want to see for yourself? Visit myflexlearning.com B to learn more about it and receive $500 off the first year of use. That's myflexlearning.com B-E. Now, getting back just real quickly to the man in the middle example that you offered, one of the things that you uh, gave us in terms of preparing for this podcast was some information on kids contacting people they don't know online. And it, it seems to tie in with that example you gave, because if you've got two of your devices in IR range of each other and the individuals know who's at each end, but then there's a block and a third device shows up they're not necessarily going to know who's controlling that device. And I think that puts it in very real terms for kids in terms of where their information is going. Yeah, for sure. I mean, and and that's cybersecurity is such a broad topic, right? Because you do have these uh, bad actors in this space that are that are malicious and they want to uh, either contact kids to take their identity or contact kids kids to establish some kind of relationship and it that's scary stuff um, yeah or just also, bully them honestly yeah well and then that's the other thing it's then, the, then just the intra intra community stuff between kids and other members of the community and the cyber right. bullying and like the yeah. stuff that like 40 percent of kids ages 12 to 17 have experienced cyber bullying against themselves more have witnessed it right um sure and it's a challenge and it's um, something that I think if you don't surface and don't discuss, it just mm. gets worse, right? I've been thinking a lot about this for a project that I've been working on and it's it's a little scary that there is some evidence that we're losing or we've weakened common norms of behavior. Like it's not nice to be cruel to someone is no longer necessarily a given, particularly when you're talking about the online world. And, mm-hmm. and I, I, 
I, I'm concerned about how that plays out and whether or not, you know, hopefully on an interpersonal level, this do unto others as you would have them do unto you is still a basic rule of existence. But um, I think educating people about some of the harms that can occur, particularly at younger ages, can bring some of that back, I think. Yes. Yeah, I well, the very first one of these lessons that we put together is goes into kind of establishing a computing code of ethics with your ah, with your classroom, yeah. right? And in that situation, the robots are mainly just used to highlight a, a rule or an expected behavior, um, right? So like you can't impersonate others in an online space or you can't damage other people's di digital property. Um, right, right. And I don't know. There, yeah, there's another type of uh, situation that we try to address is just like, not yeah that they they could do mean things to each other and harm each other in, as cyber boys but then there's also like there's also it's extremely easy i think for kids to do more malicious stuff right like you hear about the the sure. student in miami dade uh school district that that shut down the district with some kind of script kid that attack the whole district right oh yeah and and the fact is now of course with the quote-unquote democratization of tools you know your average 12 year old who happens to know about the dark web and has downloaded a tor browser can now get these scripts and run them just yeah. as effectively as kevin mitnick did you know 25 years ago as an adult the best way to address that is with some some good up education up front about why that's that, that's not okay <laughs> really not a, yeah really not a good idea yeah well actually to be honest with you todd that launched this whole cyber traps thing because what i was trying to do back in 2010 was to help parents understand that they were now giving kids the capability to do things they couldn't do before mm -hmm. and that was before we even got into all of the stuff like sexting and so forth which was on nobody's radar uh, back then, but just in terms of cyberbullying and cyber harassment and you know misuse of data, all of that was now winding up in kids' hands in a way that it just didn't before, and it's it's really been quite a cultural shift. Yeah, for sure. Well, and it's something that uh, you know the other thing that we talk about a lot is that we as adults are learning these new technologies as they come out at the same time that kids are. And, and so that makes it even more complicated. So like the student in Miami Dade, for example, um, you know, he's just, he's just in there maybe being malicious, maybe not, but there are real adult level consequences for him for mm. doing something like that. And, you know, when I was a kid, like, I, I got away with a lot of things because nobody else knew what was going on. <laughs> and so <laughs> when I was, when I was browsing inappropriate websites on the school network, nobody was even monitoring that there were no filters set up. There were no, uh, there was no anything Now, when I was talking to someone who said they were a teenage girl in Australia, uh, on, on a chat page at school, there was nothing like there was no oversight or support because nobody knew what was going on. So talk to us about the difference between adults learning about this and kids learning about this, because that's a real issue also, because many of these things, you know, 
a, a lot of that conversation about a Tor browser or script kitties, a lot of adults don't even understand what those things are. So how do we how do we balance educating the adults versus educating the kids, or do we just bypass the adults because they'll die anyway because they're older? What? Well, I mean, <laughs> all right, that was inappropriate. Was, that, that, hit home, that hit home, Jethro. <laughs> kids in school today versus when you were in school, Jethro. I mean, the kids are, in some cases, are probably ahead of the adults now as well, right? And especially given the IT resources at a typical school district, um, I would say that they're they're playing a catch up, a game of catch up in the larger world of cybersecurity. And that's just that's like on an IT versus a student level. But then also in the classroom, I mean, even with we're to, trying to teach computer science, oftentimes computer science is a subject that teachers aren't 100 percent comfortable with. Um, we try to in our curriculum and our resources, it's kind of written for the student, but we're hope, hoping that teachers learn alongside students for all or that's a, a big message we send is like failure is okay for students failure is okay for teachers it's just important to these are important topics for everyone to know so i think that it's where the curriculum might be for students but um I, there's a lot to learn in there for for teachers as well yeah very fascinating stuff um so just to kind of start closing us out here Let's talk a little bit about your vision for the future and and what you think things are going to look like going forward, especially as there's all this AI stuff out there. What uh, what does it look like for you in teaching this to kids and kids being safe and um, helping them make good decisions? I mean, you can go whatever direction you want, but but what does that future look like for you? There's a great question, and there's so many different ways to take it, but I, I hope that from a technological development point of view, that a lot of a lot of companies that are developing tools uh, for us to use as consumers, but then also particularly companies that are developing applications and software and hardware to be used in, in, in schools, I hope that they can take, kind of take a, a very ethical um, and measured approach to to. For, to the apps and the hardware that they put in the hands of students, right? So that it, it's just a safer ecosystem. You see things like uh, GDPR and what, what's happening in, in Europe in terms of regulation. I think all that stuff helps to, alongside of increased uh, education and knowledge with these topics, I think that just elevates the the, the safety of, a, of an ecosystem as a whole. That's one thing I hope for the future. And uh, if I can just jump in, uh, for a second, yeah, the the GDPR and what um, what that has created on the web has been terrible, and that is part of the problem. Is that we make these laws that force us to do some certain things, and all it results in really is getting these cookie notifications that take up half your screen when you're browsing a website and make it difficult for you to uh, opt out and make it extra steps to make sure when really it should be, hey, by default, we're not gonna collect your information. And if you want us to, uh, if you wanna help us out and you just like love people and love helping companies get more data on you, then click this box to be able to <laughs> opt in. And that's not at all what's happened. It's turned into this terrible thing that every time I go to a website, um, I have like half my screen taken over with 
all kinds of banners and bars and different things that make it so that I can't actually get to the content that I want to. And that that's just one of my personal frustrations that I don't want to create rules and laws that make it so that using these things is a bad experience for people. I want them to be informed. I want them to have information, but like, where do you find the balance in that? Fred, any, any insight or thought from you? Well, we need vast improvements in user experience interfaces for these kinds of things. And what you're really complaining about, Jethro, is the uneasy relationship among lawyers, technologists, uh, regulators, all of whom have their own investment in how this rolls out. And I would argue that by and large, on the regulatory and less so on the legal and definitely not on the technologist side, there are good impulses. I do think that regulators are trying to protect people and we're trying to work our way through this, but we're still in the very early stages of understanding how people absorb information. And I would argue, Todd, and I suspect you can weigh in on this, is that corporate legal types have never figured out how to explain themselves clearly to the public. I mean, look, we've got an average reading level in this country of what, ninth grade? Optimistically speaking, Todd, you probably know better than I do. But when have you seen a privacy policy written to a ninth grade level? You know, that was clear, understandable, absorbable quickly. That's a real complaint that I have. And I think that if we could get to that point, a lot of your concerns, Jethro, might be addressed. Uh, don't get me started on plain English privacy policies. <laughs> that is. Oh, no, no, I did. I did. I just did. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that that is so frustrating to me. Why does it have to be so difficult? Uh, I've yeah. I've consulted with a few different companies and my approach has always been, how can you make this so ridiculously simple that nobody can misunderstand what is going on? I mean, right. We either keep your data for these reasons or we don't keep your data at all. Which is it? Like, it's not that (laughs) difficult. It doesn't need to be legalese. It doesn't need to be 20 pages long. Uh, Todd, what's your thought? But on the alternate Tuesdays, we may use it for this. Oh, brother. Yeah. You're not kidding. Todd, what are your thoughts on that? Anything you want to add? Well, I am, I'm, I'm not a lawyer and I'm not on that team. Um, but as a, someone who does read privacy policies, I agree hundred percent that they should be written in plain English. My caveat is even if they were written in plain English, would anyone read them? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's true too, but at least uh, people would know. And then they could yeah. go back and say, oh, you keep all of my data so that you can sell it to another company. Okay. Yeah. Well, good to know. Thanks. My, abs- my absolute favorite anecdote on this, Todd, was that about, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago, some Norwegian company put a $5,000 reward on page 12 of their privacy policy and offered to send it to the first person who asked for it. <laughs> Took six and a half months before anybody requested the money. Oh, wow. <laughs> so anyway. It's just um, crazy. Crazy stuff. Well, look, we've covered a lot of landscape here. I think the one last thing that I am curious about is um, with respect to the work you do at Sphero, where do you see your personal work going, particularly in the concept of cybersecurity? 
particularly in the in the area of cybersecurity. I mean, we created these lessons for middle school. I would like to develop uh, lessons that also even go go younger and start looking at these topics both for for younger students. Right now, if you go through them, they can they are pretty dependent on reading, which is not not quite as bad as a privacy policy, but there are words. Um, and so, <laughs> figuring out how to communicate and uh, surface some of these topics for younger students is something that I'm really interested in. Sure. Well, I know that there have been good uh, there's been good progress made on cyberbullying for younger grades. There are definitely mm -hmm. ways to illustrate that, and I think also the tactile approach that your company pursues offers a lot of interesting pathways in that respect. Yes, for sure. Yeah. It's nice. I think one thing is just, I you, you can do a whole bunch in classrooms with discussions and role plays, but when you externalize some of these topics on, on a, on a robot, sometimes those conversations are a little easier. Yeah, <laughs> makes sense. Well, at some point we'll have to have you back on to talk about, uh, um asimov's rules of robotics and see if we can bring that <laughs> into play as well all righty well todd i'd really like to thank you for coming in and talking with us today it's been a real pleasure speaking with you yeah thanks for having me it's been a lot of fun jethro anything to wrap up with nope that's it for me all righty well that wraps up this episode of the Cybertraps podcast in the coming weeks we'll continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to a growing collection of international experts who are helping us to understand the risks and the rewards of digital technology. You can find the Cybertraps podcast on all of your favorite podcast apps. We hope that you'll share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have guest questions or topic suggestions. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps. And if you're still listening, you must have loved this interview. Please leave us a five-star rating and review in your podcast service. We appreciate you having you with us. We look forward to chatting with you next time on the Cybertraps podcast. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master's schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to ixl.com B to learn how IXL's research proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's ixl.com slash B-E.